You're listening to WSUW 91.7 FM, The Edge in Whitewater, Wisconsin. This is Rashkin Report, and I'm your host, Yuri Rashkin. Uh, my next guest is uh, Ilya Zaslavsky. Ilya is a research expert at Free Russia Foundation and also an energy consultant. Uh, Ilya, welcome to the program. Uh, th- thanks for having me. Hello. Absolutely. Uh, we have several things that I would like to discuss that uh, I think have uh, that you have some very interesting expertise on. And the first I'd like to touch on is the idea of, uh, well, the concept of sanctions. Uh, this is something that uh, the European sanctions against Russia and American sanctions against Russia. This has been something that has developed into um, a kind of an ongoing subject of conversation. It's viewed one way in Russia. It is viewed differently in America. In America, we have a history of sanctions with different countries with mixed results. Uh, you know, most notably, probably for most people, would be sanctions against Iran. Um, and, and I think even now that sanctions have been lifted, uh, if you ask different people about the impact that those sanctions had, they will give you different uh, opinions of whether sanctions are effective or not. So um, let's let's start with, do you feel that uh, sanctions have been imposed on Russia, uh, whether it is for annexation of Crimea or uh, for the, the, the <clears throat> hybrid war, as Russia uh, sometimes is referred to, having a war in uh, eastern Ukraine? What impact do you feel that those sanctions have had on Russia? Uh, I think uh, current sanctions are quite superficial. Uh, and they've been um, uh, applied sort of reluctantly uh, and very mildly, uh, as as the only alternative was no action at all uh, uh, or full-scale um, conflict or harsh sanc- sanctions, uh, um, sort of Iran-style sanctions are much harsher. They uh, actually prohibit export of oil and gas from Iran. They... Uh, stopped uh, all financial operations uh, with Iran. Uh, nothing like that happened with uh, Russia. So um, current sanctions, they just um, sort of send a signal uh, to Russia what more can come if uh, Russian invasion uh, in eastern Ukraine continues. Uh, and um, they have created what one could call a chilling effect on Russian investments. They have prevented uh, some Russian companies from uh, borrowing in the West, although uh, Russians have been quite uh, amazing in circumventing uh, even those sanctions and still uh, be- being able to borrow in the West, uh, in the West and continue uh, operations um, in the West. Uh, so I would say uh, that um, these sanctions um, are quite weak. And they don't achieve their main uh, objective in uh, uh, reversing Russian policy. They just help to um, maybe reduce Russian resources available for war a little bit. But Russian economy is seems to be in such a dire straits right now and continues to decline. Um, is it all purely based on the price of gas and oil or do sanctions uh, make a difference? Well, it's an interesting question, and I uh, actually cover it in my latest research um, called The Tsar and His uh, Business Serves, uh, published by Martin Center uh, in Brussels. Uh, you can find it online. Uh, it's, um, uh, it's a matter of dispute. Uh, 
what had a bigger impact on Russia, its own uh, systemic inefficiency, which was present already before. Uh, and systemic inefficiency, events. and we will visit this more, but systemic inefficiency can really refer also to huge level of corruption. Level of corruption and uh, lack of free market, uh, dominance of uh, state corporations and state-controlled entities over uh, uh, private competition. Um, so Russia was already experiencing uh, decline and uh, inefficiency uh, around 2012-2013 and then obviously uh, oil price has a huge impact as well Um, so I would uh, say that uh, those two factors uh, uh, bad competition corruption uh, and uh, low oil price they have much bigger impact than this chilling effect from sanctions Uh, although I mean obviously cumulatively they um, they act uh, uh, that that's a force which is uh, stronger. You know, and and I've I, yeah I've heard this idea before that uh, the the sanctions aren't really hurting who they're designed to hurt. They're very specific, and and as you mentioned, uh, the people that uh, it's aimed at have been fairly successful at finding ways around and and getting money. But nonetheless, uh, it seems that the war in eastern Ukraine has not progressed as Russia may have wanted in the beginning, um, that the Crimea is not being recognized by international community, uh, has great economic impact on Crimea and on Russia, where it sucks a lot of the resources from the center to support this newly annexed territory. Um, so, But in the end, you still feel that there's other things that have had more impact and uh, the sanctions at best, I don't know, greased, the, you know, I don't know, provided an excuse or exacerbated certain um, outcomes. What do you think? Uh, I think uh, the main reason why Russian aggression stopped in eastern Ukraine had nothing to do with sanctions. It had to do with resistance of Ukrainian army and Ukrainian people. And uh, Putin just realized that uh, he would have to uh, commit uh, tens of thousands of troops uh, and in a total bloodbath, and it would not be sustainable, even with huge losses, because even if you occupy Ukraine, uh, then you, or even half of Ukraine, you would then have to, uh, you you would have then to face uh, practically guerrilla war, and Ukrainians. Uh, have proven that they they've been quite well in that during Second World War and before that, so that was not an option for him, uh, not because of sanctions. Uh, as for Crimea, uh, I mean um, it's um, turned into a very grey zone, uh, a grey economic zone um, with lots of criminality and lots of illegal activity, as have other uh, areas where Russia has meddled in um, uh, post-Soviet space. So we, we see the same situation in um, South Ossetia, in Transnistria, uh, and some other places. Uh, and uh, actually, given that the uh, Russian regime is full of criminals and full of um, corrupt officials, uh, actually some of them make money out of that. Uh, I mean, there is... Uh, a brilliant article by Mark Galeotti from NYU, who just shows that um, Crimea became this new um, 
Eldorado for some of these criminals, uh, including those who are part of the regime. So I would actually uh, distinguish between interests of Russia as a country and uh, uh, regime in the Kremlin. Uh, so um, the situation in Crimea is actually quite suitable um, for, for, for current people in the Kremlin. And I don't think they are bothered that much with um, uh, some of the uh, repercussions um, f from annexation of Crimea. Uh, so uh, to return to sanctions, I think uh, they, um, they are just uh, a response from Western policymakers who don't know what else better they can do. So this is like a, a bad response from a bad and weak response from the West, uh, because there is they just couldn't come up with anything better. And uh, the, the thing is, um, in my view, the West faces a choice: um, either they uh, are ready to escalate the conflict and endure some costs, some relatively limited costs, but still tangible costs like uh, slow, uh, lower consumption of oil and gas. Uh, uh, less trade with Russia and some of the post-Soviet states con dominated by Russia. Um, they would have to, I don't know, increase their spending on military. Uh, so some tangible and serious costs which leaders of the West have to sell to their voters and uh, electorate uh, in the West. Or they can do what they do now, just really present very superficial sanctions, just not to appear to be appeasing. Russia, but uh, really, it's uh, one inch. W what's happening right now? It's just like one inch away from appeasing. But it's okay. All right. Um, so then, yeah. What is uh, since you are the expert? What is okay. this? What is the solution? Is the solution to build up army and to surround Russia with NATO forces, um, or is the solution to have stronger sanctions? Or is what? Where? What should? The West do. I mean, the, uh, it all depends on what what's your long-term objective and uh, how you assess the situation right now. Because, um, in my view, current policymakers and uh, opinion makers and society in general in the West, they they still don't see much danger coming out of Russia for themselves. They, I mean, they think that. Russia is just meddling in Ukraine and it's a near broad space, uh, that it could be a corrupt state, but basically it's, uh, it's them. It has little to do with us. Uh, under that scenario, it's, uh, if, if they are correct, maybe current uh, policies are okay because, I mean, current policy is not like, uh, I don't, I'm not saying it's illogical. It's, um, it aims to sort of slowly strangle uh, Russia's power, just squeeze, uh, um, make uh, fewer resources available to Russia through chilling effect of sanctions and force them to change maybe after five years or so. I mean, so it's a, it's a strategy of very long patience. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, if you assess the risks coming out of Russia differently, as I do, as and many other people do, if you, th I think that... Uh, uh, Russia is capable, the current regime in Russia is, uh, is capable of uh, inflicting much more damage to the West itself through uh, 
starting from cyber attacks uh, and uh, uh, cr criminal outright criminal activity uh, of its um, criminal gangs. So, I mean, we saw a number of cases uh, emerging from Spanish prosecution about Russian organized crime in, in Europe. We saw some other reports. Uh, and uh, it could inflict damage in many other different ways by uh, actually exporting its uh, uh, values and practices. Russia is in the lead of many other kleptocratic states in post-Soviet space. And uh, I would maybe add that uh, uh, there are other uh, states in G20 who... Um, now believe in crony capitalism. Uh, I mean, it's called crony capitalism or um, state capitalism. Uh, so I would say it's a, in a way it's a standoff between G7 and um, G13 within G20. So the countries like China, South Africa, Brazil, there and others in um, G20, they're actually quite prone to corruption and to ways of Russian-style capitalism much more than uh, um, within G7. And actually within G7 as well there is difference. Some countries like Italy, they're also, I mean, they, they've been um, in a way subdued by people like Berlusconi and the corruption of their own. So uh, just to finish, uh, I think the, the, the danger in the long term is much more uh, apparent to, to, to experts and uh, solutions uh, require costs uh, from the West uh, 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 considerable costs today in order to avoid even bigger costs tomorrow. You're listening to 91.7 FM, The Edge, WSUW in Whitewater, Wisconsin. This is Rashkin Report, and I'm your host, Yuri Rashkin, and we're speaking today with Ilya Zaslavsky, who is a research expert at Free Russia Foundation and an energy consultant. Um, he just authored a report on uh, the state of uh, corruption in Russia, especially when it has to do with small and medium-sized businesses. Ilya, when we're speaking about um, small and medium-sized businesses in a situation in a country where the entire country is uh, covered by this uh, epidemic of corruption and, as you just referenced, um, state uh, capitalism or crony capitalism really just means that state players own all the big assets. Um, what environment is there left uh, for the for the small business to operate in, I mean, it it, it really seems like competition is not what it's about. Uh, it sounds absolutely right. Uh, I mean, their main reaction uh, to depressed economy and sanctions uh, has been uh, to go into shadow economy and also just to cut costs to embark on uh, very big austerity. Uh, so, um, I mean, there have been some small protests, uh, sort of disparate protests uh, among some farmers, among some owners of small kiosks. Um, truck drivers. Truck drivers. Uh, but even, even them, they haven't uh, uh, challenged Putin or Kremlin uh, or foreign policy or domestic policy of the Kremlin. They only challenged the government uh, and... Uh, only on economic issues. And uh, actually, many of them tried to appeal to Putin. 
the the most visible um, uh, image to me in in that story was when some owners of kiosks would put a, a photo of Putin next to icons in in the w- windows of their shops, and then escava- excavators would still come around and. Uh, uh, destroy them. Well, um, and that, and that works in two ways because on one hand, uh, as a result of political cleansing, there's nobody else but Putin that people can associate with having any power in the country. Um, and at the same time, they also want to send a message that they are pro Putin. God forbid they're not opposition. Exactly. Yes. Yes. There, there is this, uh, um, sort of belief in the good czar and also if you don't stick your neck too, too much out and you just ask for, you know, economic things, then you'll be okay. But these people have been proven wrong again and again, and they just uh, don't learn. So um, to kind of connect our first uh, part of our conversation with this, uh, the sanctions, uh, have they hit large businesses differently than small businesses? Um, and and what is the impact of uh, those has been on, on that small business? Uh, as I said, it's very difficult to disentangle and calculate the exact portion of the impact from sanctions versus from low oil price and from um, just overall bad economy, a corrupt economy. Uh, some people try to do it. I think overall the, the mainstream consensus is that corruption and low oil price impact more than sanctions, and sanctions they just add to inability to get uh, loans and technology to buy uh, fancy imports, uh, but they haven't really, they haven't been the main cause of the uh, depression in the economy. Uh, I would say uh, uh, the biggest effect is this chilling effect, something which is just a perception that undermines uh, investor confidence. So it's not very tangible and it doesn't necessarily directly um, impact uh, businesses, but it's uh, something that impacts their uh, perception of should they just go into, you know, should they invest more into uh, legitimate business or should they just uh, scale back and take some money out into the shadow economy? Uh, That's, I think, the, the biggest impact. Do you feel that it makes sense for anybody to either invest money in Russia or to start businesses in Russia right now? I mean, um, it makes sense to some uh, very risky speculators who uh, who like volatile markets, especially on stock exchange. Otherwise, I think uh, many Western businesses just um, turned away from Russia. I mean, some of the... Uh, sellers of luxury uh, consumer goods, they still continue, there's still uh, some market for them among um, Moscovites and uh, people from big cities. But um, I wouldn't invest my own money in Russia right now. Definitely not. All right. There's a very interesting situation developing right now with Putin, where he is in a process of switching the people at some of the key positions. And one of the ideas and theories that I've heard that makes a reasonable amount of sense is when a dictator first goes up, he makes sure that all his good buddies and good friends are occupying all the good positions. But then as time goes on, he becomes so much, you know, rises so much above his friends. And now he's got 
problem of people who may remember him before he was in power. And so now it seems like Putin is replacing his old friends with uh, bodyguards in a position of governors of different areas, uh, because at least he's sure of those people's loyalty. Um, how does all of that shift in oligarchy affects uh, the money streams as well as uh, corruption and, and other issues? Um, I think you're partially right uh, in that assessment. Uh, indeed, he, uh, he doesn't want any charismatic people uh, or around him or any people with any uh, political face or independence, uh, even marginal one. He hardly so he, tolerates people that are taller than him. Uh, that's another thing. That, that's true. So uh, he puts these gray suits um, uh, who, who nobody knows uh, in these positions of um, power who are completely subordinate to him. Um, I think one of the other theories I've heard is that uh, he himself just knows uh, much more about the bad state, how bad the state of the economy is and that uh, he he's doing these reshuffles um, uh, with uh, the thought of what may come soon uh, when the when much bigger economic crisis uh, happens um, I mean I can only guess I uh, I do think uh, some bigger economic crisis is about to come but I'm not sure how how much bigger Uh, because the official numbers are they are not trustworthy as well um, as as everything else that comes from this regime uh, not only election results uh, but um, uh, just to return to his uh, um, recruitment and employment policy um, we had a very interesting uh, meeting here in Washington when a friend of mine uh, Anastasia Kirilenko brought uh, a film which she made, uh, which is called Who is Mr. Putin? And it's available uh, online on Radio Liberty website. Uh, it's available in, in, in Russian. It, I think it will soon come out with uh, English subtitles. And uh, Anastasia, together with uh, another um, American invest, uh, researcher, Karin Dawisha, who wrote a book, Putin's Cryptocracy, They looked at origins of Putin and how he made his first money and first uh, political power in St. Petersburg in 1990s. And the um, biggest feature about that is that Putin has always employed criminal gangs and criminal connections, which KGB had for many years uh, before him. And he created this dedicated group of people in St. Petersburg, which now is essentially in power. Uh, most of these people from uh, St. Petersburg are now in power. So this coherent group, uh, which one could call uh, an organized crime group, others could call it mafia state, uh, I would call it just um, a very sort of poisonous blend of ex-KGB people, uh, communist party people, uh, some people with uh, connections in the criminal world, not necessarily criminals themselves, uh, who, who blended together and who have this very sort of dedicated um, uh, view of life and uh, a strong hierarchy. And they're all, um, uh, there is this uh, notion of 
круговая порука, which uh, in English could be translated as collective gang responsibility. So like a typical mob practice where a group of people are connected to each other by um, collective crime, collect involvement in, in some collective crimes. They all have blood on their hands. Not necessarily. I mean, some of them probably have blood on their hands. Most of it is... I would imagine the, the amount of blood varies. <laughs> Most of it, I think, is money laundering, uh, all sorts of uh, corruption. Uh, so Putin has successfully, from those days to, to, to these days, he has employed that uh, collective gang responsibility. And, and so many of these people around him, both officials and oligarchs, they are uh, tied to him um, through this collective responsibility. So uh, to return back to your question, I don't see any split of elites, uh, any uh, oligarchs who are sort of against uh, Putin. In my study, I uh, list all the loyal um, statements that oligarchs have made to Putin in the last two years. And uh, there is literally not a single um, oligarch, especially connected to uh, Russian economy, to mineral extraction uh, sectors or to, uh, to, to some tangible economy. None of them are even remotely, um, you know, protesting Putin. I, I, I thought of only two people and it took me like a, a lot of time to come up. There are two oligarchs who, in my view, um, went through some transformation over the last 20 years, uh, and they're both in the West now. Uh, Pavel Durov, uh, the creator of uh, social network Kontakte, the, the analog of Facebook, or Russian Facebook, and another guy, Yuri Milner. He is also IT guy, nothing to do with mineral extraction uh, industry, so he is now in Silicon Valley. So these are the only two people who are not known that well in the West or even in Russia. Uh, and even them, I mean, they're not perfect. All the rest, like uh, literally several hundred people uh, who are uh, top of Russia's Forbes list, they're all uh, connected to the regime through various ties, including criminal ties. And there is no way they're going to present any political um, resistance to Putin. So to sum up, uh, the, the thing is why I'm bringing this all up is uh, there is this very popular myth uh, among Western policymakers that somehow, you know, these sanctions and this um, bad, aggressive foreign policy, it will create split of elites. No, it won't. So unless you really... Uh, create very harsh sanctions, uh, this regime will continue as it is, uh, and uh, all these oligarchs will stay loyal. Okay. Ilya, before we shift to next topic, I wanted to briefly touch on something that you touched on in your answer as well, and that's the trustworthiness of the information that comes out of uh, the system. Uh, Russian uh, Russian power system. Um, I think that Russian people, um, and, I, and I'm speaking broadly by citizens of Russian Federation, have a clear understanding that you really can't 
trust anything that comes out of the government. It is being uh, spun for specific purposes and release of information is not what it's about. And I think that's pretty clear because it uh, starts with Mr. Putin, who is a former KGB officer and views information as, as a tool um, that, that he can use in his purposes, not to mention that like, particularly recently, it seems like everything he says, the reality is exactly the opposite. Um, but what are your thoughts as a researcher to, as to what, how, how much trust can a Western audience put into the information that comes out of uh, Kremlin? I mean, they have an official spokespeople, spokespersons. Um, what, should we disregard what they say? Should we treat it skeptically? Should we believe it? What are your thoughts? Um, I mean, earlier I was referring to very specific like macroeconomic data, uh, so inflation rate, uh, uh, GDP growth, uh, even those very specific uh, numbers uh, which are supposed to be apolitical, uh, they're not trustworthy in my view. So they should be taken with some degree of skepticism. But, um, uh, I mean... Um, they're probably not completely uh, fake, but um, there is a significant margin of uh, distortion, I would say. that. But uh, otherwise, of course, on um, global, uh, international issues, Kremlin has been uh, uh, dedicated to uh, present uh, deliberately fabricated information. So uh, lately, they, I mean, everything that came out on uh, MH17 flight uh, and it's the downing of that airplane in Ukraine or on events in Syria when they bombed the convoy UN convoy uh, I mean it's all just uh, uh, Minister of uh, Nazi propaganda Goebbels would, would be very proud of uh, uh, the ways uh, Kremlin presents such information uh, right now uh, Otherwise, um, what worries me the most uh, and the biggest lesson for the West, in my view, is uh, uh, to stop treating uh, Russian legal system as as um, legitimate. A system to, that either has legality or is a system. Uh, anything that comes from prosecution office, from investigation from Ministry of Justice on uh, international uh, uh, on uh, for, for on events of international importance or um, for uh, criminal investigations um, in the west so for example spanish prosecution uh, has been looking into russian organized crime in europe for many years now i mean it's been covered in wikileaks uh, and many newspapers um so for some time, for a very long time, they actually tried to cooperate with uh, Russian Ministry of Justice, with uh, Ministry of Internal Affairs, and those ministries and all the all other law enforcement in Russia, they deliberately and in a very sophisticated way actually uh, uh, meddled with um, uh, objective investigation. They tried to uh, cover criminals. They they wanted to confuse uh, Western. Um, investigators. So it wasn't like uh, just not giving information. They were deliberately uh, 
counteracting uh, any uh, attempts to bring justice. And we can see it in many other cases, with Magnitsky case, with uh, uh, all sorts of um, cases uh, which are reviewed by European Court of Human Rights. Uh, so uh, the, con the implication for me is that the West should start thinking about uh, treating Russia and some other post-Soviet states uh, as a legally failed states. So any information coming from their law enforcement or Ministry of Justice and so on should be treated uh, from the outset, should be treated with suspicion. So there should be no presumption of innocence there. There should be presu presumption of fabrication. And if if we do acknowledge such uh, such reality, which I think we should, then there is a very there are very serious consequences. I think, for example, the U.S. Congress would then have to come up with some system to deal with legally failed states. To, to how you. How, how do you sign um, economic agreements with such states? How do you, uh, basically, how do you enact all um, clauses uh, in different agreements? Uh, so there is a whole chain of, of uh, actions that you have to take after that. Ilya, you made me curious. Is there a precedent of this legally failed state? Uh, I mean, it's a good question. Uh, it's something that I haven't researched uh, enough myself. So that but, could be uh, the subject of your next paper, perhaps. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, but, um, I, I mean, I would say, for example, no one treats uh, North Korea or Afghanistan until recently as, as a, um, a legally normal state. So um, if, if, say, North Korean uh, Ministry of Justice sends you some documents, immediately you... you you have suspicion about them rather than trust. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure that it's in, ingrained in law in some particular uh, formal uh, structures, but uh, at least there is this attitude which is lacking about Russia, I think. So, um, I mean, no, it's a, it's a complicated question. It's not like something that can be done overnight and uh, there is no easy solution. But uh, it's definitely... So, as I said, the first step is just to acknowledge the scale of the problem. I think I think what, what you're speaking about is a paradigm, and a certain paradigm shift that require that is required in, when dealing with countries like Russia, where you just shift the paradigm from um, like dealing, thinking that you're dealing with another country like any other country, and coming to a realization that you're not. Um, all right, so exactly. I'll reset one more time. You're listening to 91.7 FM, WSUW, The Edge in Whitewater, Wisconsin. Uh, this is Rashkin Report. I'm Yuri Rashkin, and uh, my guest today is Ilya Zaslavsky, who is a research expert at Free Russia Foundation and an energy consultant. And uh, he's speaking with us from uh, Washington, D.C. But, um, Ilya, I'd like to spend the last few minutes kind of talking about your story a little bit and the journey that you went through where you were working, uh, you know, you, you left Russia and then you came back to Russia and you worked for a Western company. You were uh, charged with crime that, uh, you know, that this is pretty much routine. People get charged with crimes in order to either affect them or to affect their employer. In your case, it sounds like it was actually your company that 
uh, Russian oligarchs or government or the system really was after. Um, and then you left and were able to leave and, and came to the West, uh, came back out and you're an Oxford graduate and you discovered that your university was in really good uh, relationship with some of the people that uh, were looking to put you and your employer uh, either in jail or out of business uh, because uh, they are contributing uh, large sums of money to Oxford and uh, to probably other schools out West uh, as uh, the question of legitimizing all the stolen money is uh, such a relevant question for the oligarchs. Um, so, But it sounds like you've been uh, fighting this battle uh, pretty hard. So why don't you tell us about it? Uh, yes, everything you said is pretty much uh, correct. Uh, I worked in TNKBP, which was um, uh, a Russian subsidiary of uh, British Petroleum, BP, where um, Anglo-American uh, uh, company Brit uh, BP uh, owned 50%. And then uh, Russian oligarchs um, uh, from AAR consortium, together with Russian security services, FSB, uh, they decided to take over operational control of the company, and so they did with uh, a lot of state uh, agency support and uh, very vile propaganda. So they uh, they presented me uh, and my brother, who had nothing to do with that company, as an organized crime group uh, who failed to do some espionage. They never said for who... Uh, and with what motive, uh, but um, uh, then uh, they um, uh, e tried to implicate even British Council as a, a spy platform uh, as well. Um, and uh, this case has been covered widely in uh, WikiLeaks reports of U.S. Embassy in Moscow in 2008 and 2009. And uh, my judge and prosecutor... Uh, are now on the uh, list of gross human rights violators of U.S. Congress called Magnitsky List. Um, I, uh, not not uh, then on that list, not because of my uh, case, but right at the same time, the, the these officials were involved in some other uh, fabricated cases. Um, it's but very, it just it's very nice of you to say you could just say it's because of me that they're all being prosecuted. No, no, I'm tr <laughs> I, I try to stay uh, objective. I mean, I have proven, I have um, uh, written about this case and talked about it extensively. There are many other layers how I can prove, how I have proved that uh, it's been fabricated, but not on, on that level. Uh, I mean, I, I actually tried to add my prosecutor to Magnitsky list, and then it turned out, U.S. State Department uh, added, it, uh, added him uh, on their own <laughs> uh, while I was uh, doing, trying to do that. Uh, I, I'm, I recorded uh, a podcast with International Spy Museum on this uh, last month uh, covering this story, and there are many newspaper articles. But to return to Oxford, um, I was um, shocked to learn that... Uh, top administrators and some tutors at Oxford uh, knew perfectly well about this uh, case and they actually, some of them even provided um, uh, references for us uh, and the Oxford student newspapers wrote about our case uh, uh, pledging support to, to me and my brother who is also a graduate of Oxford. Uh, and uh, then they cooperated uh, with these oligarchs uh, so um, 
Firstly, it was Alpha Bank uh, people, oligarchs Michael Friedman and Peter Avin, who had a joint business award with Said Business School at Oxford uh, in 2007-2011. And uh, Oxford then quietly closed that award. I think because my suspicion, they did it because Department of Justice made a big investigation into um, the activity of one of their main uh, international companies uh, in telecommunications called Vimpelcom. And uh, this year, um, Department of Justice uh, uh, fined uh, Vimpelcom $795 million, and it's the biggest uh, sort of bribe case, proven bribe case in their history. And... um, uh, then, in 2010, uh, Oxford uh, University took money from another oligarch, Leon Blavatnik, who, try, who likes to pose uh, as a U.S. philanthropist, although he, Panama Papers revealed that he continues to have strong ties with um, Russian government. So he has – it sounds ridiculous, but it's true. Uh, it's been written in uh, uh, Panama Papers that he has – a joint entertainment business, digital entertainment business, with Deputy Minister of Russian Internal Affairs. Uh, that's and that's that, nice. <laughs> it's it's quite unbelievable, but this is uh, <laughs> Russia Today for you. That's how it works. And, I mean, th- there are many, many other controversies about these people, apart from uh, how they corporate raided uh, BP in Russia and how they engage with Russian government. Uh and I've written extensively about that, but um, the, it's not. Uh, it's uh, you. That's what you would expect of Russian oligarchs, but that's not what uh, the, the cover-up which Oxford uh, University administrators pr- provided to these oligarchs. That's what uh, unexpected. I um, tried. Fir- I first tried to persuade them quietly uh, and diplomatically to just even look at my case and consider it and review maybe due diligence processes, they just patronized and uh, uh, dismissed me. So uh, after censorship on this issue, I decided to take um, uh, this, to to start a campaign. And so last year, uh, we published an article, an open letter on the front page of The Guardian, and uh, it was signed by uh, several prominent Russian uh, dissidents, uh, Vladimir Bukovsky, Pavel Litvinov, uh, and by uh, about uh, over a dozen of uh, other um, activists, political emigres, academics, uh, alumni of Oxford, uh, Cambridge, and Garvard University. And um, uh, since then, we have um, a petition on change.org, which many Western and Russian uh, academics and alumni signed, uh, uh, including some famous names. Um, And uh, at some point, uh, I um, decided to... uh, I I mean, I was um, separately... uh, uh, I had uh, a letter exchange with Nadia Savchenko, uh, uh, a very well-known uh, Ukrainian deputy who was uh, in Russian prison because of the war. Uh, she was basically held as a hostage. And there's this online um, 
NGO called Drosuznik, where you can actually write to uh, different prisoners in Russia. So we had this um, exchange with Nadia uh, earlier this year. That's, and, that's uh, just, you know, let, let's stop for a second because I okay. think that, that is really interesting that uh, so there's a way that if somebody wants to, they can get in touch with a Russian prisoner via email? Uh, no, how it works, you, you go to rosuznik.org Rosuznik, uh, this would be like the Russian convict, uh, so yes. like R-O-S-U-Z-N-I-K, something like that? Uh, yes, Rosuznik okay. and mm -hmm. .org, and then there are activists in Russia who then print out your letter and they uh, um, take it to Russian prisons uh, through whatever legitimate way there is to take the, the letters. And so, astonishingly, that worked, and uh, I it did because uh, Nadezhda Savchenko, Nadia Savchenko has been, uh, you know, I guess cause celebre would be one way to put it, but uh, she managed to gain a huge amount of notoriety uh, because of the circumstances surrounding um, her arrest or capture. And uh, she went on several hunger strikes and nearly died in jail. And then she was uh, convicted by Russian court or whatever in East Ukrainian. I think it's rebel-held territories there. And was given like 21 years of jail. And then after that, she was uh, exchanged and sent back to Ukraine for a couple of people that were, you know, significantly less than her in stature. And uh, so she, it's it's kind of a like if if people know Pussy Riot. Uh, Nadezhda Savchenko has been kind of a more of a political and military version of a uh, person that attracts a huge amount of attention and uh, uh, then becomes kind of maybe a pawn in political games or uh, depending on her own story and personality can, you know, things develop. But uh, she, and uh, Ms. Savchenko has been quite active in uh, Ukrainian politics and in general is not going anywhere and uh, uh, good for you for reaching out and connecting with her. Yes, and I mean, I'm very grateful to her for her support to the petition uh, that she provided. Um, and, uh, I mean, there have been other people, like um, former director of Canon Institute, Professor Peter Redaway, uh, and uh, many others. I don't even want to list it, but you can find these names by going to change.org or just contacting me. And uh, we continue this campaign. Um, Oxford continues to pretend that nothing bad happened. And um, they uh, now embarked on a very active uh, counter campaign of just silencing any debate or any discussion of this issue. Um, and uh, uh, the, ol the oligarchs uh, uh, who, who help them in that, they... Uh, they have so much money uh, that they have penetrated Western establishment not only in, in Europe but also in the U.S. Uh, and uh, I mean they've been associated now with Yale University, Harvard University, uh, with um, Canon Institute at the Wilson Center, where one of them received a corporate citizenship award. And I mean the the, the most Orwellian feature about these guys is that. They've done so much um, uh, abusive and controversial stuff in post-Soviet space, but here in the West, they're praised um, especially for their best business practices and governance. So they don't want just, you know, just to make a name for being a philanthropist in biology or... No, they want 
uh, best business practices and governance. Uh, and that's uh, the most ridiculous and uh, silly thing that uh, one could imagine. Uh, and it, w- it would have been funny if it wasn't real. Ilya, do, do you have any idea on the numbers as far as the amount of money that's been contributed either to Oxford or in general or any numbers that you can share with us? Yeah, absolutely. It's not a secret. Uh, uh, Len Blavatnik provided uh, 75 m- uh, million pounds uh, to Oxford um, and uh, he pledged a bit more. And uh, that's really copex to him. Uh, uh, that's a fraction of a fraction of what he received from Putin and Sachin uh, uh, just in one deal uh, where Rosneft bought uh, the company which they uh, corporate raided in 2008. So uh, Tanky BP, which they got control of in 2008, they sold it to state-controlled Rosneft for $28 billion in cash. And uh, many analysts uh, believe that at least 8 to $10 billion from that sum uh, was an excessive amount which cannot be explained by commercial logic so it's a good business uh, uh, Blavatnik alone received around 2 to 3 billion in excess of the market value of his stake and then he goes to Oxford gives 75 million pounds and he's praised for you know uh, being a US philanthropist and uh, um, there is now even um, a joint um, course on uh, governance in mineral extraction industry at that school. So they, in his name, they now teach how to be uh, nice and honest in mineral extraction. Well, some would say that uh, what we saw in this con- country with uh, Carnegie, uh, who, uh, not Dale Carnegie, but the other Carnegie, who uh, made huge fortune with not necessarily best business practices. Um, I'm trying to remember the industry, the steel industry, I think, um, mm-hmm. that, that he had such a huge part of part in and uh, that turned into Carnegie Libraries, Carnegie Foundation. I mean, one of the organizations uh, currently working hardest to preserve semblance of free speech in Russia is the Carnegie Foundation. And Car- Mr. Carnegie himself was um, not, you know, not all that nice or cared about democracy. Well, it's an interest- interesting that you bring this up. Um, and uh, I mean, Thank I've you. heard, <laughs> I've, I've heard, I've heard, uh, it's definitely not, um, completely black and white situation uh, uh, and I've heard uh, uh, positions like yours uh, from, from a number of people. So um, we should take it uh, by stages I think. So firstly what happened with Carnegie or Cecil Rhodes or others like that, that happened like over 100 years ago. Since then uh, entities like uh, uh, universities like Oxford University, they they have claimed that they have changed significantly, that there is no longer racial discrimination, there are very different values now. They're, in their statutes, they talk about uh, ethics. And so, for example, in terms of donations, they have, uh, they're supposed to have a very ethical committee to review donations, which is supposed to take uh, money not only uh, based on business sense, but also on ethical norms. So are you saying uh, that the, the more millions and the more zeros, the less ethics? Absolutely. That's now the case with um, Oxford. We, through, we have filed a number of freedom of information requests. And what we learned is that the two external members 
which was supposed to actually bring a view of, on ethics of this donation. These two external people, one of them is Baroness Neville Jones, and another one was a banker from Lloyds Bank, Sir, uh, Sir uh, Victor Blank. They both had uh, tarnished reputations, especially in due diligence in their own areas. So Baroness Neville Jones was discussed by British media at the time when she was on the committee. She was discussed, uh, uh, she was not promoted and criticized uh, for having links to uh, oligarchs, especially to uh, her people took donations from Dmitry Firtash, another Ukrainian oligarch. And uh, Sir Victor uh, Blank, he, he almost lost his knighthood because of the way due diligence was carried out at Lloyds Bank uh, during financial crisis. So he had to retire in disgrace and almost lost his knife. So these two people were supposed to take an ethical decision on Blavatnik's donation, which is a joke. It's, I mean, uh, Kafka would not would envy such plot, I think. Well, but it kind of supports the theory that Russian leadership seems to have that you can buy anything. Exactly, and I mean, uh, my my only question is. Is uh, Western society okay with that? Uh, are you okay with your top universities being essentially corrupted uh, ethically, if not literally, by these very controversial figures who essentially robbed Russian people of um, and r robbed Russian budget of uh, its money? Do you want uh, to teach global governance in mineral extraction industries uh, f under such names and with such money? Uh, and also, I want to say that um, uh, I actually even doubt that this uh, this school is supposed to be independent, uh, even if the money is bad. But it's not. It's uh, involved in a lot of self-censorship. Uh, so this school of government hasn't touched uh, even a single, single time uh, on the topic of Putin, Ukraine, aggression in Europe oligarchs, you can just Google, you can go to their website and Google uh, and insert these keywords in their search. Um, and uh, it's just a joke. Uh, you have a, a major school of government in Europe, which avoids all these questions. Uh, and also I know that um, the head of the school, uh, Professor Neri Woods, she denied an interview she and the school, they denied an interview to New Yorker magazine, but uh, she, she's a, she, one of the biggest interviews she gave was to Russia Today. So, um, Well, and if that isn't a flagship of honesty and truthfulness, then I don't know what is. Exactly, exactly. So, um, in my view, just to come back to Carnegie, and uh, I, I think if we... If we accept uh, values and practices from 100 years ago and say, like, what Carnegie did 100 years ago is okay and we can repeat it now, then Oxford University should drop its pretense to have ethical norms. They should stop doing photo ops with human rights activists, which they often do, because on many levels they try to convey this uh, message that they are very much for human rights, they are very much for equality, they uh, want global governance, transparency, 
So um, this case shows that uh, uh, all of that is just a hypocrisy. <laughs> and uh, then I would argue if you believe in uh, ideals of 100 years ago, then just drop uh, pretense and uh, just act as, um, uh, as we did 100 years ago. But uh, probably they don't want to do that. They want the, the best of both worlds. They want the money from 100 years ago, but they want the niceties and the uh, benefits of, um, you know, uh, t today's world. Well, in my view, it doesn't work like that. Ilya Zaslavsky is a research expert at Free Russia Foundation and energy consultant. Um, Ilya, thank you so much for being on the program. How can uh, people learn more about uh, your battles and uh, uh, if they want to get involved or spread the word or anything like that? Uh, what's the contact information we should let people know about? Uh, th thanks for having me. And uh, my contacts are very easy. Uh, you can just email me at iizaslavsky uh, e uh, in one word. That's my first initial and uh, my last name at iCloud.com or you can just go to change.org and uh, put in in the search uh, put in Blavatnik or put in Oxford as a keyword uh, and it will take you right to our petition wonderful yeah thank you so much for being on the program Th thanks for having me